Alcoholism is fast becoming the most discussed problem of the modern era. Seldom a week passes without some national publication printing an article dealing with this condition. More and more frequently public speakers, particularly in the educational and moral fields, are contributing their thinking toward the solution of this problem of alcoholism. And no sane person can deny that the, the appalling fact is that alcoholism itself is increasing in leaps and bounds. According to statistics, in 1950, there were in the United States 700,000 alcoholics. At that time, there were five million people who drank regularly and occasionally to excess. In 1955, there were 2,500,000 alcoholics and 10 million people who drank regularly and occasionally to excess. In 1958, there were five million alcoholics and 15 million people who drank as a matter of custom and on occasion drank to excess. In 1959, there are 8 million alcoholics and 20 million people who drink regularly and occasionally to excess. Alcoholism today is rated Third, as a national health problem. And each year, 100,000 people die as a direct or indirect result of alcoholism. Last year, it cost industry in the United States $2,755 millions of dollars. And still, in the face of these facts, we know that the present methods in many instances of dealing with the problem of alcoholism are in many cases expensive, sometimes even barbaric, almost always punitive, and most times they neither rehabilitate nor do they prevent. And perhaps what is worse, is the persistent and consistent attitudes of some of our outstanding national speakers, both on radio and television, who still maintain that alcoholism is a moral degeneration of vice and who look down upon and criticize such efforts as the work of Alcoholics Anonymous in endeavoring to find a solution to this problem. You know, I often think, I'll mention no names, when some of these good gentlemen are speaking about alcoholism, I say I often think to myself, I wish I knew as little about it as they do. Now, before we go any further, let's define our terms lest we too be confused. 
And let's ask ourselves, what do we mean by an alcoholic? Now, in order to illustrate better what an alcoholic is and to define it more dramatically, I have brought with me a little friend of mine this evening. Now, this little friend of mine is a little duck. See, he's nice red head, gold neck, gold bottom, and he sits on a little perch like all little ducks do, so they tell me. Now we'll put this little duck in the front of a glass of water, and I guarantee you it is water. <laughs> now as long as he stands there and leaves that liquid alone, he is a very normal duck. He's standing there very erect, swaying just a little. But if I give him a drink, then, I hope this works, <laughs> he will continue to drink as long as there is liquid there. <laughs> there he goes again. <laughs> Behold the alcoholic. <laughs> now, how do we stop him? There's only one way. The same way you would have to stop any alcoholic. Take him away forcefully, lay him down, and dry him out. So that an alcoholic is one who, having taken one drink, cannot guarantee his sobriety. Or as medicine tells us, it is an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. As long as the alcoholic does not take alcohol, he can adjust to life just as normally as anyone in this world. But once having taken alcohol, he's in for trouble. The same as the diabetic. The diabetic cannot take sugar. If he doesn't take sugar, he can go along leading a normal life. But once he takes sugar too much, something's going to happen. He's going to get very, very sick. So therefore, all alcoholics are excessive drinkers. But not all excessive drinkers are alcoholics. Now, for the sake of distinction, let's call the one a drunkard and the other an alcoholic. A drunkard is one who willfully drinks to excess because he wants to drink to excess. He has a good time drinking to excess, and when he decides to quit, he quits, and that's it. Oh, he might have a big head or a hangover. But that's the end of that binge. But the alcoholic, on the other hand, does not want to drink to excess. But contrary to his will, in spite of all the efforts he may muster, once having taken a drink, he always ends up drinking to excess. The drunkard is the sinner. The alcoholic is a sick man. A drunkard enjoys his drinking. 
An alcoholic loathes and hates it. Many on the outside, and those on the outside we lovingly call non-alcoholics, think the alcoholic is still enjoying his drinking. Far be it from me to ever try to stop a man drinking if he's enjoying it. That's for sure. Of course, I don't think you'd have much luck either way anyhow. You know, a good way to keep this distinction in mind is the story they tell about two fellows who met on the crossroads of California here one time. And the one said to the other, he said, Hello, Bob, where are you going? Bob says, I'm going down Long Beach. And I'm going to get on a grand and glorious drunk, and I'm going to have one grand and glorious time. He says, where are you going? The other guy says, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going down here to Hollywood. And I'm going to get on a grand and glorious drunk and how I dread it. <laughs> so we maintain that willful drunkenness is still a sin. We do not deny the morality of excessive, willful, excessive drinking. But we do very definitely maintain that alcoholism is a very definite illness. A highly complex one and often far too often a fatal one. Now, what are the objections that our critics bring against the labeling of alcoholism as an illness? Well, first, one would say, and I quote, one implication of this teaching is that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, would mean that an alcoholic is not morally responsible, who has been, say, five or more years dry, and then becomes intoxicated or drunk, unquote. Well, it's just the opposite. We maintain he better realize once and for all that he is still an alcoholic. If he don't, he has no defense against the first drink. Whereas if I realize today I'm still an alcoholic, although a non-drinking alcoholic, that means I still cannot safely take that first drink of alcohol. Therefore, we do maintain very definitely once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Another criticism is that they say we make light of willpower. We don't deny willpower or make light of willpower. In fact, we believe the alcoholic has more willpower than the average person. Look at the alcoholic. Sows to the gills, but he still has to do his work. And watch him try to do it, stumbling all over the place. Where's the drunkard? He's home in bed. He never had enough willpower even to get up. We do realize, as has been the teaching for centuries, beginning with Seneca, thousands of years ago, with Augustine and Thomas and all the rest, that there is inherent weakness of will in all of us. But we don't say that the alcoholic is of necessity a weak-willed person. He simply cannot tolerate alcohol. So therefore we feel that those who condemn all alcoholics as moral delinquents are in the same category 
with those who condemn all psychiatry because of Freudian psychoanalysis. We feel that all those who call excessive drinking sinful are just as wrong and just as errant from the truth as those who call all excessive drinking a disease. They're both wrong. What we need today more than anything else is clarification, understanding rather than the hurling of dogmatic tizzes and taints and so that nobody gets nowhere. Of course, we should keep in mind that the excessive drinking itself is not the illness. The excessive drinking is a symptom of the illness, the same as the coma into which the diabetic goes when he takes too much sugar. That's a symptom of his diabetes. Then we also answer to those who say, well, most alcoholics were responsible for their condition. Well, even if we admit that, which we don't, I think we must admit that 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of all people who contract venereal disease were very, very much morally responsible for the contracting of it. And most of the time it was through sinful actions. But right here and now, they are very, very sick people. You know, uh, it is amazing to me how many professional people dealing with the problem of excessive drinking and alcoholism still categorically maintain that all alcoholics will to be alcoholics, they all were escapists to begin with, or they started to drink because of some circumstance of living. Whereas in reality, 60% of all alcoholics started as normal social drinkers, drifted unconsciously into excessive drinking, finally into the phase of chronic alcoholism. And to bear that out, I quote Dr. E.M. Jelinek of Yale University, one of the doctors whom I would say has as much knowledge of alcoholism as anyone in the present era. And he says, quote, 60% of excessive drinkers come from an entirely normal origin, and only in the course of normal drinking do they begin to increase the intake. They are not seeking release in the beginning. They are conforming to certain habits of the social stratum in which they live, unquote. You know, I read in the newspaper just last week where a medical man made the assertion that the reason alcoholics became alcoholics, and he never qualified it, was because simply they were lonely people. Well, I don't know. I've seen many kinds of alcoholics. I've seen a lot of alcoholics who were very lone drinkers, but I've seen just as many alcoholics who were very gregarious drinkers. That's where we have such terms as telephonitis and what have you. One drink, and they're the most gregarious people in the world. Well, then the question comes, 
What is the cause of alcoholism? Well, I used to say that's the $64,000 question, but I don't dare say that anymore. (laughs) So I'll simply say that neither medicine nor psychiatry nor religion knows the cause. There's a lot of contributory causes. Pain, nervousness, environment, loneliness, All the things that many people ascribe as the ultimate cause, those are merely contributory causes. And if the alcoholic didn't have those, he'd have something else in their place. We in AA call them excuses. The good doctors call them circumstances of life. But they're nice things to use when we want to drink. Now, I myself have a personal opinion on the cause of alcoholism, but it is merely a personal opinion, and I'm going to simply throw it out for what it's worth. There's one quality that I have found stable in every alcoholic, and what I mean by that, I have never yet met an alcoholic that does not have this facet to his character, and that is a certain indefinable fear element that is operating in the personality of the alcoholic. Now, what it is, where it comes from, I don't know. But I do know that is there, and I believe that that is responsible for the ultimate taking on of the four basic traits of all alcoholics. And these four basic traits are ultra-sensitivity, ultra-childishness, ultra-egocentricity, and ultra-grandiosity. Now, I use the term ultra-designedly because we could say that all people are sensitive and childish to some extent and egocentric and grandiose on occasion. But the alcoholic, he is extremely so. He is ultra-ultra, you know. Now, these four traits manifest themselves in the conscious life of the alcoholic in the following way. First, by irritability, then defiance, pouting, braggadocio, quarreling, loneliness, depression, elation, reticence, aggressiveness, stubbornness, determination, dishonesty, nervousness, restlessness, frustration, and selfishness. You've seen them all. And some might think, where did I find out all this? I just took a little inventory. (laughs) But here is one factor that is seldom realized. And that is that most of these manifestations in the alcoholic stem on many occasions from this fear element. Now, let's take an example. Here's a fellow. He's been on a binge. He's an alcoholic. He's sobered up. His wife has very tolerantly taken him back. Perhaps even his boss has given him a trial again. Time goes along. He's on parole, as it were. There's friction. There's a fuss. Right away, he clams up 
He goes off to himself, and everybody says, look, he's pouting. Perhaps. But why? He's scared to death. What's going around in his mind is, am I going to lose my job? Is the wife going to walk out on me again? All those things that just happened weeks or months before. Am I going back to the sanitarium? And all those other things that have happened to him. Come back with a rush to his mind. And so many of these instances or manifestations in the alcoholic, I say, on many occasions, not all the time, but many occasions, they are touched off, motivated by fear, even irritability, or loneliness, depression, nervousness. Why are we so jittery? We said a while ago, we know two and two is four, but we can't quite bear it. We're scared of it. All these, I maintain, stem from an abnormal, indefinable fear element in the personality of the alcoholic. Now, I used to, some years ago, go along with Dr. Strecker of Pennsylvania University, who defines the alcoholic as a product of momism mixed with alcohol. But I don't go along with that anymore because I've seen a lot of products of momism mixed with alcohol and they didn't become alcoholics. They became bad neurotics, <laughs> but not alcoholics. So it is not the cause of alcoholism. Now the next question that comes to our minds is what are we going to do about the problem of alcoholism? Well, first of all, I think the most pressing thing to do is to recognize the problem. You know, it's amazing. And if it weren't so solemn and so serious, it would be distressing and amusing to see so many people in public life, heads of institutions, heads of organizations of every type, very solemnly and dogmatically and very naively say, we haven't got any alcoholics in our setup. We haven't got any alcoholics. Then I think we have to recognize it for what it is and not label the alcoholic as a moral delinquent. Then I think we should bring it out into the open more. I think there's much too much hush-hush about the true essence of the problem and much too much ballyhoo and a lot of claptrap about the problem that does not exist. And so that today, believe it or not, 75% of the population of the United States has no idea of alcoholism or even of the idea of the Alcoholics Anonymous in uh, offering sobriety to the alcoholic. You know, every time I make this talk, there's always someone prohibitionistic in tendency will come up to me after the talk and they'll say, well, Father, that's fine now what you said tonight, but wouldn't it be better if we just did away with alcohol because of all these things that come from it? I said, no, no more than it would be better to do away with women because of prostitution. That shuts them up. <laughs> you know,
know, I don't know why it is, but for some reason, the world condemns the alcoholic as the lowest of creatures. Call a person anything under the sun, but not an alcoholic. An alcoholic, shh, that's terrible. I remember one time I got a letter from a young lady to show you how terrible a connotation the term alcoholic has. And this letter said, Dear Father, she said, I have a problem. She says, I'm in love with a very nice young gentleman. However, my little sister, she is an alcoholic. Now, on the other hand, my dad was electrocuted for murder some years back. My brother now is serving a life term also for murder. And my mother was a streetwalker before she met Dad. Now, what I want to know, Doctor, is, should I tell my fiancé that my little sister is an alcoholic? <laughs> Why is it, then that the therapies of the past have been so unsuccessful with the alcoholic. And then suddenly an organization such as Alcoholics Anonymous comes along and has the amount of success which we do have today. Well, let's take an analysis of the situation. Who were the professions that treated alcoholism? First, the doctors, the psychiatrists, and the clergy. And what did the doctor say to the alcoholic in years gone by? And still too many doctors say it today. Look, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. Well, he knew that. And sometimes he almost was there. And in order to die a little more peacefully, he got himself another fifth. What did the psychiatrist say to the alcoholic? If you don't stop drinking, you're going crazy. He knew that too. And he might have had a trek or two out to the asylum. In order to make that next uh, uh, time in the asylum a little more peaceful, he got himself another fifth. Then what did the clergy say to the alcoholic? The clergyman said, look, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to hell. And he knew that too. And to make uh, the flames a little more palatable, he got himself another fifth. And then came Alcoholics Anonymous which has had the amazing success of those who come of their own free will, of 50% from initial contact. 50% do not drink again. Now let's first take a short history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous began in 1935. 1935, on Mother's Day... In Akron, Ohio, a fellow by the name of Bill, who was a stockbroker from New York, had been hospitalized 41 times for alcoholism. And on this occasion, as he lay there in his cot in the hospital, he overheard the doctor tell his wife, Poor Bill, one more drunk and he'll die. Well, Bill was there trying to figure out how he could avoid that next drunk. And then he got the idea that maybe if I uh, work with another alcoholic, if I help another alcoholic, maybe I'll stay sober. 
very hazily at first. But that idea came to his mind. A little later on, a fellow by the name of Ebby came to Bill in his kitchen. And he had known that Ebby had been a very heavy drinker. When he knew him in college, behold, Ebby was uh, very well dressed, sober, and seemingly happy. And Bill said, what's the matter? What you got? How come? He first offered him a drink, and Ebby refused. Ebby says, I got religion. I got the idea of God. And that gave Bill the two ideas of helping others and God, which in the 12 steps first is mentioned as a power greater than ourselves and then is referred to as God. So about a month or two later, he went to Akron, Ohio on a business deal. The deal fell through. He came downstairs on the elevator, very depressed and discouraged. And as he got off the elevator, he looked across the lobby of the hotel, and there over the door he saw T-A-V-E-R-N. Immediately the thought, a little drink, and I'll feel fine. And then the thought, look up another alcoholic. He went to the phone. He called nine clergymen. None of them knew any alcoholics. Believe it or not. But finally he found one who did. And uh, this clergyman introduced Bill by phone to this alcoholic. And the wife answered the phone. And his name, the alcoholic's name, was Dr. Bob. So Bill asked, is Dr. Bob there? And his wife, Anne, said, yes, he's very much here. You know, this is Mother's Day. And about five minutes ago, he appeared at the front door with a beautiful potted plant. And then he proceeded to fall over on his face more potted than the plant. <laughs> well, Bill said, could I speak to him? I'd like to talk to him about alcoholism. I've got a new idea. And says, wait a minute. She came back. He said he would give you three minutes. Bill said, I'd be over. He went over. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. And three o'clock the next morning, they were still talking. And there was given birth, what we know today as Alcoholics Anonymous. Very hazy in the beginning. For a number of years, all we had in AA was three things. Get honest with yourself. Clean house. Help others. And then gradually the 12 steps and the whole therapy of AA as we have it today. Now why is Alcoholics Anonymous successful whereas all these therapies of the past fail? And any doctor and any psychiatrist and any clergyman will tell you in past years the alcoholic was looked upon as a hopeless individual. Well, first of all, I think they failed because they tried to scare the alcoholic into sobriety. And that was his problem to begin with. And so he only drank the more. Another reason, and this is a very important reason that AA has been so successful, is because Alcoholics Anonymous approached the problem on the only sane way to approach it, and that is on the threefold areas of mind, body, and soul. And we maintain that an alcoholic, unless he adjusts again 
mentally, physically, and spiritually, he will not probably stay sober. Or as we very uh, bluntly said in AA, a sober alcoholic unhappy ain't going to stay sober too long until he becomes happy again. Or unless he becomes happy again. Then the applying to the alcoholic the age-old group therapy, which has been used through the centuries, of one and others in a group helping the individual to solve their problems. One alcoholic helping the other alcoholic. Then another reason I think AA is so successful is because it seems that Almighty God has given us, as alcoholics, an ability to establish in another alcoholic a contact of confidence which is given to non-alcoholics only on rare occasions and in rare incidents. One alcoholic places again into the heart and to the mind and soul of the new alcoholic the first light of confidence. I say we feel God has given us that gift. And that's the reason we try to carry the message that we have received to other alcoholics. And through it, confidence again is born in the person himself, then in his fellow man, then in his God, which is the ultimate and only stable source of all security and confidence. And then AA has 12 steps of adjustment, carrying out our idea that unless the alcoholic adjusts on all areas of life, he will not probably remain sober long. We take 12 suggested steps, which are as follows. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. In other words, it's not a question of willpower. It's a question of want power, of the giving in of a stubborn will. We accept the fact that we can't drink normally. We can't drink socially. We cannot tolerate alcohol. Our lives by this time have become, as a result, unmanageable. You know, in this matter of the alcoholic and willpower, so many people feel that the alcoholic absolutely has no will in the matter. I remember one outstanding man in religion made the remark publicly that the alcoholic keeps on drinking because he just can't help himself in any way. We don't admit that. We say we are powerless over alcohol but immediately we say we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Then the third step made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood Him. Now a lot of people will condemn us for using a power greater than ourselves. And the reason that's used in the 12 steps because after all, there's alcoholics all over the world. There's alcoholic Hottentots. There's alcoholic uh, uh, people in every country in the world. I imagine there are a few even in Russia. 
Who knows? But if they can accept a power greater than themselves, they can stay sober. Then the fourth step made a searching and fearless moral inventory. Again, elimination of fear. The fifth step admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. The sixth step, we're entirely ready to have God remove these shortcomings. Seventh, humbly ask Him to do so. Eighth, made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Ninth, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except where to do so would injure them or others. Tenth, continued to take personal inventory, and when wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleventh, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry it out. And you know, this often amuses me. When we see people high in the echelons of religion condemn AA as a naturalistic program, that only tells me one thing, they have never read the 12 steps. Because no sane person could read the 11th step and say that is a naturalistic approach to God. We sought through prayer and meditation. That's very spiritual to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry it out. If a man or a woman takes that step, he would be a saint. Of course, we ain't saints. In the big AA book, we say we grow towards perfection. We grow along spiritual lines. And that takes a long time. But that is the ultimate. That is the aim. And there's no greater ideal we could possibly have, whether we be Catholic, Protestant, or Jew, than the ideal as enunciated in the eleventh step. And because of the importance, I'm going to repeat it again, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry it out. Because the union of wills, human and divine, that and that alone is perfection. The twelfth step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we carry this message to other alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. You know, to me, AA is something like a fellow who is drowning. He's drowning in the river and a guy comes along the bank and he says, Hey, grab that branch and you won't drown. And the only difficulty is there ain't no branch. And then another fellow comes along and he says, Grab that boat and you won't drown. The only trouble is there ain't no boat. But then along comes a fellow like A.A. and he said, Just a minute, I'll be in and we'll swim together to shore. And together we'll make it. Because you see, I almost drowned right here. Some years back. It's something like the little kid who went to the uh, puppy sale. And this little chap wanted a puppy so very badly. So he pulled the fellow who was selling the puppies on the pant leg and he said, Hey, could I buy a puppy? 
And the guy said, yes, if you got $10. Oh, gee, mister, the little guy said, I only got $1.69. He said, I heard you had a puppy here who was crippled. Maybe I could buy him. The fellow says, oh, no, you wouldn't want him. He's crippled. You'd want a live dog to run around with. And the little chap pulled up his leg, his pants, and he said, look, mister, I'm crippled too. And I'm thinking that that little puppy is just the one I'd want because I think he's going to need a lot of understanding for a long, long time until he gets used to it. Because you see, mister, I did. And thank you for listening, and may God bless you all.